Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Matt Swing, so without further ado, here he is. Would you join me as we pray for Pastor Matt as he brings the Word of God? Lord, we thank you for our brother, our friend, our pastor, Matt and his family, and we pray, God, your blessings on them. We thank you so much for who he has been in this community, what he has brought to this ministry. We pray now as he stands at the pulpit and speaks for you, that you would use everything that you have made him to be, every conviction you've poured into his spirit, and we pray that you will fill him with your Holy Spirit so that when he speaks, it would be as though we are hearing the very words of God. And we know how much this passage means to Matt, but we also know how much it meant to you when you first spoke them to your people. We pray you would speak them again this morning in power and in authority. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 61. It's a little bit past the middle, if you don't know where it is in the Old Testament, just past Psalms and Proverbs. Isaiah 61. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. This is, like Pastor Dave said, this is probably one of my most favorite passages in the Old Testament. <clears throat> I have a few, but this is definitely at the top of the list. Um, so just, just, just let the words soak in as we read it. <clears throat> the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, they will receive their inheritance, so that they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are the people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and the garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. So, 
this is a powerful, like, even not knowing any context, when you read these words, there's a sense that there, there's a lot of power behind what is spoken here. Uh, but one of the things I really love, uh, and the thing that keeps drawing me back to the Old Testament, and, and the thing that's really powerful about this verse, Isaiah is standing kind of on the crossroads of the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, he's looking back, he's calling a nation to look back at their entire history. He's calling them to look back on a time that was more glorious in their history and say, you know what, I know things aren't going that well right now in this moment, but we have a greater hope and something that's going to happen that is very amazing, and I want you to pay attention because God hasn't forgotten you. So this was written about 600 years before Jesus was born. And to me, that makes it even more powerful because these words have a profound uh, connection to who Jesus was. But before we go there, let's take a look at Isaiah as a book. This book is in the Old Testament. It's one of the prophets. And uh, the, first 40, the first 39 chapters of this book are pretty hard to read. They are, consi- they are prophetic warnings. They were written to Judah the southern kingdoms of Israel. You see, the northern kingdoms have already been sent to exile. The northern kingdoms are already gone. Their land has been dispersed among the nations. This is Israel who was once a superpower in the region. In the time of David and Solomon, there was no one that matched their power, their wealth, the glory that this this country had in the world. They They were the only superpower. They were the guys. They were at the top. Now, Isaiah, in the first part of, uh, of the book of Isaiah, he's giving out warning after warning to, to Judah, the southern kingdoms of Israel, reminding them who they are called to be. Reminding them that, look, you made a promise to God that you were going to live in his ways and follow him all your days. And, but you also remember that when you made that promise, there came with it a list of consequences if you didn't follow in those ways. And he's like, I'm, com- I'm telling you, those consequences are coming. And you better be prepared because if, if you don't get prepared, those consequences are coming whether you like it or not. You will, you will receive the consequences of, of the promises of the curses that um, God promised to you. It wasn't like this just happened once or they got one warning. Over generations, God sent people to warn Israel. Generation after generation, prophet after prophet, God tried to warn his people, like, hey, I really care about you, but I cannot put up with this. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't just a harsh, graceless God who decided, I'm just going to crush these people. He said, look, I'm giving you every opportunity to change your ways. Come back to me, your first love. Pay attention to me. I am your God, and you are my people. But they refused. Something interesting happens in the middle of Isaiah. The tone of the book takes a turn. And the interesting thing to me about this is it still it happened before the exile. Isaiah knew the people were going to be going into exile. Isaiah knew the hardships that they were going to face, being drugged out of their, their homeland into a foreign land. But God's tone changed. He said, you know, it's too late. It's too late for this generation. Judgment is coming. But I wanted to show them my grace in the midst of this. I have not forgotten them. The second, the second part of Isaiah is full of hope and blessings. It's considered the book of comfort. And that's where we are today. We're, in the midst, we're reading a part of this book, a portion of this book, 
that is written specifically to the exiles of Judah who were sent to Babylon, sent from their homeland. And this is God's book. It's like a love letter to them saying, hey, this is hard. This is horrible. This is not fun. I haven't forgotten you. You see, in our lives, we will face trials and tribulations and and things like that. Maybe it's out of something that we've done that we're receiving the consequences of our actions. Maybe it's not. Regardless, God has written a letter of hope to remind us that he has not forgotten us and that he cares for us. One more interesting thing about prophets. I I really like these guys in the Old Testament. They're they're kind of rebels. uh, So, like, you have the kings and you have the priests— and they're all official. Like the kings are ordained and, and the, the priests ordain the, you know, the kings and they get to pour the oil over them. And then the kings and, then, and the, the priests all come out of the tribe of Levi. And the priests, you know, you're born into the priesthood. Um, and it's that tribe. And <clears throat> Prophets, totally random. They come from crazy messed up families. They come from the countryside. They come from, you never know where a prophet's going to come from. And they say crazy things. And they do crazy things. And they're really bizarre. Um, but they are, the, they are God's choice for how he would speak to his people. And in uh, Deuteronomy 18, God, God says, I'm going to give, every, I'm going to give Israel a, a spokesperson, a prophet. They will come and they will speak my words to the people. And what I'm thinking, they will say. And so God, God ordained this process, but it's totally random. And I think that would be, that'd be the craziest thing. That like, oh, suddenly this guy shows up. Oh, I guess he's our prophet. He's our new prophet. But the craziest thing was um, prophets, the, the, reason, the way you know if a prophet's a real prophet or not is by whether what they say comes true or doesn't. So if it comes true, they're a real prophet. If it doesn't come true, false prophet, and then they get executed. So there was really, it was a really hard job. It was a, it was a very black and white job. There was no gray middle ground because the prophet was the one person who's speaking the words of God to the people. He's speaking either hope and comfort or judgment. And his voice, because he represents God directly, he better get it right. He better not mess it up. So there's a lot of pressure on the prophets, but the prophets, man, they are some of the craziest guys in the Old Testament and some of the most amazing and wild and faithful guys you will see. Isaiah was one of those guys. One of the things uh, that tends to happen with prophets is... Uh, Uh, they see a near future and a far future. Um, so the near future, uh, oftentimes what happens for a prophet is they, they, as they look into the future, they see a glimpse of what's going to happen in the future. The prophet that's looking in the future may or may not know the full chronological order of everything that's happening. But when he looks to the future, he sees there's a near future and there's a far future. Um, is it possible to, to is it possible to find that um, that image? I think it got lost in the transfer. I'm going to keep going. I think it's in there. If there's a way to pull it up, that'd be great for later things. Um, so, anyways, there's a there's a near future that the the prophets see in Isaiah 61. An unknown leader is announcing his mission to the world. It's a mission. Uh, that's set apart by God as a prophet. It's not limited to just preaching good news to the poor. That's a part of his function. That's a portion of what he's doing. But he is fulfilling this triple role. He's coming into the role of king, priest, and prophet. 
In the Old Testament, while there was normally one king and there were some priests and there were a prophet, this, this one prophet, this one future leader is saying, I am going to encompass all three of these things. The first thing, uh, as this prophet looks forward, he looks forward to the future, and in the near future, one of the things he wants to remind the exiles about is that they are going to have freedom from captivity and a seized red alert. Okay. Um, so as they look to the future, the first thing they're going to see is freedom from captivity. This, to the exiles, is going to be extremely good news. This, this is a book of comfort that's going to be, uh, as that people are in exile, they are struggling to maintain their identity. You see, when you go to Babylon as an exile, Babylon was, was very wickedly smart in the way that they would try to overtake nations. What they would do is they would go and they would import the entire uh, other nation into their nation and spread them out throughout their territories and throughout their cities to try to assimilate them. If you ever uh, watch Star Trek, The Borg, We Will Assimilate You, that was the Babylonians. They, they tried to bring you in and spread you out and assimilate you as a culture and wash out your culture so you, you lost it entirely, that you lost your identity, that your new identity was their identity. So for the, the, the faithful Jews living in Babylon, they had to struggle daily to maintain their identity in, a, in this world that was trying to destroy their culture, destroy who they were as a people. Sound familiar? Have you ever felt like that? So they lived in Babylon. They lived in exile for 70 years, a, a little over a generation. During that time, can you imagine at the end, if you're at the end of that 70 years, and you're, you're reading this good news. You are going to be free from captivity. We have a way to freedom, a pathway back home. This would have been extremely good news. The, the, I, the only thing I could think of to compare it to is at the end of Schindler's List, Schindler has this factory full of, of Jews, and they've, he's managed to rescue this, this one factory full of, of, of Jewish families. And they've gone out into the countryside and they're making, they have a factory where they make bombs and they make bombs that don't work so that they won't act, so that they're trying to defeat the German army from within, but they have to look good. Um, and he rescued this entire population. And then there's a day where this, a, a jeep drives up and they say, the allies are here. We're saved. We're rescued. We're free. Can you imagine the the this, the, the, the amount of joy and the freedom and the excitement you would feel when this, when this jeep pulls up and it says, you're free. You're free from captivity. That is the kind of feeling that the Jews would have felt in exile. The second thing that the prophet saw was forgiveness of debt. Oh, awesome. Okay. This is the little prophet, okay? He looks like a prophet, right? So he's looking forward, he's looking forward into the near future, and he sees this, this he gets a glimpse of the future in, the fu- in this like hill that's in front of him. Uh, other people can't see it, so they rely on the prophet to tell them what, he, what they see. The next thing he sees is forgiveness of debt. He says, we will, you, uh, you will proclaim the year of jubilee, the year of favor of our Lord. When we read this text, we're like, hey, the year of favor, that sounds great. I love favors and party favors and... People favor me. That's wonderful. I like that kind of stuff. But it doesn't get to the heart of what the prophet was trying to talk about. The year 
of favor, the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee was a mandated requirement of the state of Israel. So, so when they set up Israel in the beginning under Moses, God set up all these rules and guidelines and stipulations. And they, had, they were really good and awesome rules. So one of the rules that they had was for six years, you're supposed to harvest the land and work it hard and make and plant, plant and grow and harvest and do everything. And on the seventh year, don't harvest anything. You don't do anything. You don't touch the land. And most of us who are pragmatists say, oh, that's great. No work on the seventh year, but how do you eat? That doesn't make any sense. God said, I promise you, if you follow my, my way, I will provide so much produce on the sixth year that you won't even miss the seventh year. So they were supposed to do this. They were supposed to follow this seven-year cycle where six years they work hard and the seventh year they rest. And they do this in honor of God. And then an, another part of this process was they were supposed to do this for seven times. So it was a 49-year process. And then on the 50th year, it was a special year. It was called the year of Jubilee. And so one of the things that Israelites were not allowed to do, their, their, their land, their, their, their possession of their land was a, a God-given inheritance. And one of the things you weren't allowed to do as a family, you weren't allowed under God's law to sell your land to others. Okay, you weren't allowed to, to, to sell it because that was, that was very important to God that, the, that his people inherit and have the land that they own. What they were allowed to do, though, if you fell on hard times, if you weren't able to make enough, you were allowed to lease your land. And your lease would go up until the end of whatever the, uh, the how many years it was till Jubilee. On the end of Jubilee, this is what was God's intent for everyone, was all debts would be washed away. No debts would be, all debts would be canceled. All land would return to its original land owners. And everyone would get a clean slate to start from scratch and have another 50 years to, to relaunch their life, their, their family life, and everything. It was God's plan to, to incorporate it within the history of Israel for them to be able to relaunch and restart their lives. I was trying to think of a kind of an example that we might have in our own country of something like this, uh, a, where something where your debts get washed away and you get to start over. I was thinking about bankruptcy, and it's similar-ish, kind of. Except, not really. Uh, it, it's kind of like a dark cloud that follows you for the rest of your life. And, and maybe after seven years or something, you kind of, it's off your record, kind of. But it's still, it's something that follows you. And it's not that sense of like, hey, your debt's forgiven and you're, you're free. It's kind of like, well, this is pro- we're, we're ready to you know, cut ties with you and we're not going to lend to you for a while. So, I don't know, that's, that doesn't really capture the essence of what God had in mind for this year of Jubilee. I did read a story, though, this past year. It was around Thanksgiving time. There was a, uh, a family, I believe is in uh, New York, and um, they, uh, they, had, they, had bought, they purchased their house years ago, um, and uh, they fell on hard times, and they were struggling to pay the mortgages, and they, they kept going to the bank saying to the bank, hey, we need to refinance. You know, this is killing us, and we're going to lose our home. They, they'd been very faithful in paying their mortgage for years, um, but they were in a really bad, bad situation. The bank was one of the banks that had received bailout money. Um, and so the bank had received an extension of grace from the government. Even though it should have gone under, the government extended grace to this bank and said, you know what, we don't want you to go under. You're too big to fail. We want to save you so that, that, you, so that our entire society won't go under. 
Well, this, this couple tried and tried and tried and tried to work with this bank, and the bank stonewalled them. When they came before the judge, and the judge heard the story of this couple, and the judge talked to this, to this bank, the judge was so infuriated by the way this bank had treated this couple, even after receiving the grace of the government, that the judge wiped away all their debt and said, you know what, I'm giving you this house, the deed to this house, mortgage-free. And I believe, I don't know all the deeds, I believe the, the bank even lost a copy of the deed or something. Like, they didn't even have all the paperwork in order. So the judge, in, in his fury and in his rage at the way the bank was treating his people, said, you know what, you're free from that debt. This house is now yours. And I think that's probably the closest example we may find in modern, in modern society of something happening. And that's not going to happen very often. That's going to be a pretty extreme case where a judge will do that on behalf of people. So here's the problem when we look at Israel. When we look at this year of Jubilee, the year of favor of our Lord. Every 49 years, everything gets wiped clean. Everyone gets to start fresh. Israel never did it. It's too hard. Too complicated. It was, they didn't trust that God would really take care of them. They didn't feel like it was fair. They weren't sure that it was a good idea. And so even though this was in their law books, written by Moses for them from God, people were like, yeah, that's a nice idea, but man, that's just too hard. You can't do that. For those living in exile, this word meant Your debts are going to be forgiven. You will be free to return. I am wiping the slate clean, and you get to start fresh. That was good news to the poor and the exile. The third thing is the day of justice. There we go. Day of justice. Uh, In in Isaiah, it's it's also called the day of vengeance. I don't know for us in our context if we fully comprehend the day of vengeance. Or it, for us, it has a lot of very negative overtones. When you think of vengeance, when I think of vengeance, it's like, oh, someone wronged me. I'm going to go get them back. That's not the kind of vengeance that this is talking about. In the Old Testament and in the Bible, vengeance only belongs to God. We have no right to vengeance on our own. But the God's vengeance is a, is a vengeance based on justice and equality. This is great comfort for those who've been suffering injustice. But this is cause of concern for those who are perpetrators and who are beneficiaries of injustice. So, this is good news to the bad news kind of scenario. It's good news for us when we're on the end of injustice and we want, when we want to see justice happen, we're like, yes, God, bring justice to this place. That's, we get excited because we're like, yes, we've been suffering, and that's not fair, and people have been mean, and we want God to come in and intervene on our behalf. We're on the, it kind of sounds more like bad news to us, though, when we're on the side where we're like, oh, I'm that person that's causing injustice in the world, and I'm the one that's participating and benefiting. So one of the questions I often ask myself is, how am I personally benefiting from injustice done to others on my behalf? Whether I condone it or not, is it happening on my behalf, and how am I participating in it? Because personally, I don't want to be on the wrong side of justice. 
I don't want to be the object of wrath because I have been disobeying God and been working against what his sense of justice is. And a couple of thoughts that come to my mind when I think about this is uh, a few years ago I read the book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Um, and it's, it talks about uh, the Western expansion of the United States and how in the midst of the Western expansion, uh, most Native American tribes were almost totally annihilated and obliterated in search of land, in search of great farmland, in search of um, raw materials like gold, timber. And I personally, standing here today, benefit from what happened to them a couple hundred years ago. My family, uh, I, my grandparents own a farm that's on Swain Road. They've lived there so long, the road's been named after them. On the farm where my grandparents live, there's an Indian mound. They have a small collection of uh, arrowheads in, their, uh, in the house that they've collected over the years that they just found in the woods and in the fields. I know that that land, one, at one time, Native Americans lived there. I don't know if my family participated or not in pushing them away, but my family, my direct family, benefited from the fact that Native Americans were pushed out of their land. Wow, that's heavy. So my family's benefited from that. Recently, I, I watched a uh, documentary. I, uh, it's called Food Incorporated. It's all about food and how it's made. It's kind of gross, but it's also kind of fun. Um, some people don't like documentaries. I, I can understand that. But the part in it that struck me was that so much of our food in the United States is produced by undocumented workers with the government's full knowledge, and yet it's kind of the government looks the other way. Uh, they, they described this one factory specifically in uh, North Carolina where the factory, the whole town is almost entirely made up of undocumented workers. The factory in the town uses almost entirely undocumented workers. And about once a week, uh, the government will go in and do a raid and, and, and ex, ex, uh, expel about 10 people uh, from the town and send them back to wherever they're from. But the thing that frustrates me is that we are benefiting from cheap food by exploiting undocumented workers. And then we're not, we pretend that we really care about the law and about protecting people. But what we do is we, we make a good show of ex, ex, uh, expelling a, a handful of people in a town that is packed full of undocumented workers working in a factory that is using them as cheap, inexpensive, borderline slave labor on our behalf so that we can have cheap prices at the grocery store. That's, I'm benefiting. I'm, it, when I buy chicken or whatever food from the grocery store, I'm participating in evil and in injustice, whether I know it or not. And uh, third thing I want to talk about in this is uh, a few years ago I, I heard a uh, speaker speak. His name is Robert Lupton. He works in inner city Atlanta, and he was speaking at Willow Creek. And one of the things that he brought up in the midst of his talk was, he said, you may have a mutual fund. In your mutual fund, you may own a section of housing and a section of this and a section of that. But he's like, in that housing, he said, it's in the benefit of your mutual fund to make the most amount of money as possible. So in order to do that, they may own an apartment complex somewhere. And in that apartment complex, they do the least amount of anything possible. They are the worst apartments you can imagine and then they charge the most that they possibly can to make you money. And you are, in essence, a slumlord 
but you don't realize it because it's mixed into your mutual funds. It's just one little sliver of all the things that you own. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. And so like, as we look in things like mutual funds, I'm like trying to research all the companies. And I'm like, this is, this is hard work. There's a lot of people here. I don't know what these companies are doing. And yet if I buy a portion of them, I'm part owner of them and I'm participating in what they do. If they're doing good things, that's great. I'm participating in good in this world. If they're doing evil things, oh, that's awful. I'm participating in evil. I'm not saying this to try to make you feel guilty about all the things that are going on in this world. We are often unaware of what's happening in our own in our own name, what people are doing on our behalf that's unjust to others. However, I believe that as Christians, as those who want to be on the side of justice and what is right, we need to seek out what God's heart is on each issue. We need to seek out justice in the world. We're not going to get it right 100% of the time, but we need to seek God's spirit and follow where he leads us. When he reveals something to us, we need to act on it and not just simply go on about our lives as if nothing has changed. But we need to take our heads out of the sand and pay attention to what God is calling us to and leading us to. I don't care about these things because I'm a particularly uh, just person. I, I'm very selfish in my own heart. But I see how much these things matter to God, and I want to get on the same page as him. The fourth thing that I want to highlight from what Isaiah said was restoration. He said the ancient ruins will be restored. So Jerusalem and Judah's, their country lies in ruins. The temple is destroyed. The palaces are knocked down. The walls are destroyed. These ruins... Uh, this promised land contained the temple of God. And, and for, the, for the Jewish people, the temple, they saw that as the place where earth and heaven intersected. When the temple was destroyed, it was as if saying, like, you are cut off from a spiritual connection with your God. You have no, you have no more interaction with him. It's not entirely true, but that's how they felt about the temple. When the temple was destroyed, they felt as if they were cut off. The realm of where heaven and earth crossed one another were, were was split and destroyed. In the eyes of the people, God's presence had left them. The ancient cities spoke to their political establishments and their political restoration. The rebuilding of the ancient cities was saying, not only will I reestablish this connection, this spiritual connection that I have with my people, not only will I reconnect heaven and earth, uh, in the way that I have intended for it to be, but I'm going to reestablish Israel as a kingdom and a superpower. And they're like, whoa, that's awesome. That's great news. Because here we are, we're almost living like slaves in Babylon, and this isn't exactly what we had in mind. This isn't, this isn't a great place to be for us. But God's promising for us. He hasn't left us. He's going to reestablish the ruins, ruins like the temple and the wall and our cities and our country, not only that, he's going to reestablish our power. We like that. We like being uh, the establishment of his kingdom this, that, that he has in, in, in mind for us. So I'm going to explain this diagram a little bit. Uh, so this is what I was talking about earlier. The prophet, as he looks forward, he doesn't really know exactly 
the chronology, the chronology of everything he sees. But he sees a near future, and he sees a far future. And I've even seen uh, examples where it's like lots of mountains, and he sees lots of different futures. And so he's just talking. Like, I saw this, and I saw this, and I saw this, and I saw this, and I saw this. But he doesn't know like, what's happening when. He's just saying, I see this in the future. This is going to happen. And the beauty is we look back at what the prophets said they saw and what happened within history is that we can begin to decipher as we look at what they saw, like, wow, this did really come true. There really was a lot of this that happened for the exiles. The exiles really did get returned to their homeland. They really were free. They really were able to reestablish Jerusalem and the walls and the temple. And yet, somehow, it doesn't fully get restored in that first homecoming to Jerusalem. They, they came back, but they never really were a superpower again. What happened? Well, the answer is that the prophet saw another future kind of behind this one. He saw them both together, so he wasn't sure. The other future even overshadows, the, the distant future overshadows the new future. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke 4, uh, 16 to 20. Are you guys ready for this to get really, really cool and amazing? This is, this is amazing stuff right here. So this is Jesus, the inauguration of his ministry. This is, a, this is where we start to see this, like the, 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 the Old Testament woven together to the New Testament. We see Jesus starting to pull things together, like all this history and background suddenly starts to take shape in, a, in, a, in something that, that is amazing and, and comes only, could only come from God. So in Luke 4, 16 and 20, Jesus spent 40, years, uh, 40, 40 weeks in the desert. He's been baptized by John. He hasn't really done anything yet. This is his first ministerial act after coming in from his, his time of uh, temptation in the desert. He went into Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isn't that powerful? You see, the first fulfillment in the near future of the exiles was true. It was God's book of comfort to the exiles. It was God saying to them, I haven't forgotten you as a nation. I'm I'm with you. I have a plan for you. But God's bringing the exiles back to Jerusalem wasn't his ultimate plan. That wasn't his ultimate dream for his people. He had a a view of history where this would be done for real in a very powerful way. When Jesus stood up to speak this, uh, it, it baffled the people that heard him. In fact, in Jesus' day, People were so excited and so ready for someone to come and save them from the oppression of Rome. The people 
even after returning from exile, they never fully felt complete political freedom. They were kind of tossed around, one superpower after another, beat up Israel for year after year after year after year. And the people desperately wanted a king, a Messiah to come. They were really, really hopeful, really waiting and watching for this Messiah that would come and restore Israel to the previous glory. And that's what they were waiting for. The thing is, Jesus came, he's like, this is happening today in your presence. The people rejected it, Jesus, because he didn't fulfill it in the way they thought it should be fulfilled. They were ready to settle for a mere country, a mere piece of, small piece of land. They wanted some political clout in a temporal world. They wanted a king that would come and reign and even though it said his king would last forever, they're like, oh, I don't know, maybe that's his sons and sons and sons and sons. But that's, that's not what God had in mind. You see, for Jesus, when he was saying these words, he was thinking of those who are exiled in sin and captive to darkness. He saw a world where everyone was broken and living in, in chains. And he says, I have come to proclaim good news to you. You no longer have to live that way. While you have been cut off from God, while you have been cut off from the realm where God is, dwells, I am making a way for you to connect. Your debt, your, your, it's not, I'm not talking about a uh, financial debt, but your sin has piled up high. It's more than you can bear. You in a thousand lifetimes could never pay that debt. And yet, it's going to be totally wiped out, totally forgiven. This is the good news that Jesus has as he's, saying this to the people. And finally, Jesus comes saying, I will be bringing you spiritual and political restoration, but it's not what you have in mind. So you see, when, when, the, when they were waiting for the Messiah, the Jews were waiting for someone to come and, and claim to the temple and take claim to the throne and kick out, kick out Rome, kick out all the other powers and just say, we are now reestablished. And Jesus said, I am coming to, to restore you spiritually and politically, and it's not going to look like anything that you've thought of before. Because this temple, even though Herod built it, and it's magnificent, and it's gold, it is nothing compared to what God has in mind. He's, and Jesus claimed that his own body, that he himself was now the temple. While this building used to be the place that we connected from where the realm where heaven and earth connected, Jesus has now taken over that position. Jesus is now the place where heaven and earth connect. Before, where Israel was merely one kingdom of many, God, Jesus came and said, I am establishing the kingdom of heaven. It is a new kind of kingdom. It is a kingdom whose reign will have no end. It has started today. You can come and you can be part of this kingdom if you'd like to. Many, in the time of Jesus, missed him. Many people were not pleased with who Jesus was. He didn't live up to their expectations. He didn't come in and overthrow Rome. He didn't reestablish Israel's kingdom. He didn't take over the temple. He did cleanse it once, kick over some tables, but he didn't take charge of it in this realm. And yet, when Jesus went on the cross and he died, he did way better than any of those things. 
You see, the beauty of this passage to me is that it points to God's vision of eternity. He's not satisfied with just political change. He's not satisfied with just people living debt-free lives because they don't have a lot of credit cards. He is looking for us to have debt-free lives where we live lives that glorify him, where we live lives where we participate. I love the part where he says, all, he says you will be priests and you will be ministers on my behalf. It's God's desire that his people will continue on his mission to the world, sharing the good news to the poor. And by the poor, it's not limited to just poor, those who live in poverty, although that is definitely a part of the call. It is poor. I, I lived in Western Europe. It is not a poor place. They, people there are very wealthy. But people there are so spiritually poor and they live in such darkness, they need someone to come and talk to them about what, it, what the good news of the gospel is. So we have to be cautious that we don't just think of poor merely as poverty, although that's part of it. But poor is anything that traps us and, help, and keeps us, hinders us from, from knowing who God is and what his plan is for our life. And the one of the coolest things in this passage is he says, I'm making with you an everlasting covenant, a promise, an eternal promise, an eternal, I, I, eternal, eternally testament with you where I will not break this. This is going to last forever. Old kingdoms will go, come and go. Superpowers come and go. Government, political parties come and go. But I'm establishing something that is eternal. Come be part of it with me. I want to warn you today, as the Old Testament prophets did, be cautious not to miss the point. Be cautious not to settle for things that are less than what God has for us. And I want to ask you, as you think about these things, where do you find yourself in this story? Would you say, are you still finding yourself in exile? Are you still trapped in darkness? Do you find that you're in a place where you really need someone to come and rescue you? Maybe you've already accepted the good news of freedom, but maybe you haven't really fully taken on the crown. Maybe you haven't fully taken on the authority that, that Christ wants to give you in his name to bless and serve and love the world. So my question for you is, I'm going to read this passage one last time. Just the passage that Jesus read at the beginning of his ministry. And just think about it. And ask yourself, in my life, is this true? Can I say that these things are true in my life as much as they are in Christ? The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who loves justice, and at the same time, you are a God that's full of grace. We know that we, uh, we really deserve to be on the, the wrong side of your justice, but you have provided a way to extend your grace to us, and you have provided a way to remove all the debts in our life that would keep us from, from you and from knowing you. And Lord, I just pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us as a church and as individuals. 
And Lord, I pray that as we live our lives, that we will live lives that are faithful to carrying out your mission in this world, to proclaim freedom to the captives in the year of favor of our Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.